where we break down all things queer and unqueer in each episode of The Wilds. My name is Rachel, and as always, I'm joined by my wife and the love of my life, Allie. Hi, everyone. Allie, who are we talking about today? Today, we are going to be going through the fourth of our special duo episodes, so we are going to be covering Rachel and Nora. The Reed Twins! The Reed Twins. Before we get started, I always do a spoiler content and language warning for each of our episodes. So spoiler-wise, we're going to be talking about things that happen across the series, so you should have watched it all content-wise. I think we're going to be talking a little bit about self-harm in this episode, as well as just some general sort of mature content, as exists throughout the show. And then language-wise, we are going to use explicit language and we're going to swear, and so be fucking prepared for it. Okay, Ali. <laughs> okay, Rachel. So before we take a deep dive... Ha, 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 See, we use deep dive a lot, but it's the most funny in this episode. Yeah, we do use it a lot, but all the puns. So before we take a deep dive into Rachel and Nora, we usually like to start out with every duo episode with a little bit of a summary on who the characters we're discussing are, what their story arc consists of, and really where we left them when we finished the series. So Allie, I was wondering if you wanted to start by giving an arc summary of Nora. So Nora is an inquisitive, an intelligent, and a kind-hearted young woman. And we sort of start her story off with her attending summer session at a university. And so she's really trying to figure out what her life path is, where she wants to go, and who she wants to be, sort of as she like moves into this next stage of her life. There she meets Quinn, and the two of them quickly start a relationship together, and that sort of relationship progresses throughout the summer. And eventually Rachel, who's Nora's twin sister, comes in to meet Quinn, sort of divides them, drives a wedge between the two of them, which ultimately ends to the two of them breaking up. Nora's really focused as she kind of goes back on trying to support her sister, who's going through her own challenges at the time. But she does try to reach back out to Quinn, seemingly to have a little bit of doubts about the breakup and, and wanting to in some ways reconcile. She finds out that Quinn passed away as part of some hazing that happened on campus. And this is really what drives her to Gretchen and drives her to building that relationship with Gretchen. Gretchen recruits her for the island, promising that it's going to be a better place, a place of healing, a place where she'll be really able to create a better world. And Nora signs on to fill one of the two Confederate roles on the island. Leah's really set up as an adversary for Nora throughout the season as Leah tries to unwind and piece together all of the bits of this larger conspiracy that she thinks is going on. This leads to sort of a culminating event where Leah catches Nora talking to headquarters and the two of them kind of face off as both of them are trying to unmask and reveal the other. Nora temporarily sort of holds up Leah by leading her down into a pit, um, but Leah, you know, climbs the fuck out of that. That height. <laughs> yeah, that height. <laughs> Um, and the end of the season sort of culminates with this confrontation as Leah charges towards Nora. At the same time, Rachel, who's really Nora's focus throughout the entire season, is having a moment of crisis. And that's sort of where we, we leave the girls is just this, all of these things that have been building all season sort of come to a head in this one moment on the beach. And it's, I mean, it's one hell of a cliffhanger. 
And what's interesting about this duo is that in a lot of ways with Nora being her episode focused on episode 10, throughout the series, we're building up her story. But with Rachel, because we spend the episode with her in episode two, we're building out her story. And so the ways in which the two of them, we see each other in their stories, but they also kind of converge and go their own ways is such a central part of the show. It's interesting too, because Leah is an adversary of both of them. Mm. So for Rachel's character summary, I have that she's driven and relentless. Rachel doesn't give up. And it's a quality that serves her both well and terribly in both her pre-island and on the island storylines. She does end up on the island by way of Nora, who wants to help her heal or move on in some way. And that's what really Gretchen sells her on. Gretchen pitches this idea of the island to her. And Nora's first question, or one of her first questions, is, can my sister come too? Rachel, to some extent, can't always get what she's healing from and places a lot of blame, and especially in the early parts of the season, on Nora getting her there, whether by way of her parents or in other ways. Despite how Rachel doesn't always see the big picture of her healing, we do get to see big growth from her. In a lot of ways, she pushes and she pulls. So she pushes up the hill, she pushes down the wreckage, and she pushes Leah in general. But she also pulls Leah back from the water, is pulled out of the quicksand, and is pulled away from her old hopes, dreams, and the narrative that she's going to be going to Stanford and she's Olympic bound. We leave her on the island with a shark circling her and having her being kind of pulled down and we see blood in the water. But we also see her in the bunker without a hand, which we assume is from the island, but we're not 100% sure. And going back to the idea that their relationship is both being built up and built out, what's really interesting is in episode two, I think we learn about where their relationship is presently in that post-island bunker timeline, because essentially Rachel says, we don't really know how the story ends between me and my sister, and it's up to you. I think for me, something that really stands out about both of them is the way that they think about isolation and the way that they think about detachment from the group. Rachel has like a quote that happens in her episode, which is where she talks about being surrounded by people, but also alone. And I think while she's really talking about herself in that moment, that quote speaks to both of them. It speaks to both Rachel and Nora and the way that they experience their regular lives, their lives back at home but also in the ways that they sort of interact and engage on the island. So I think we'll start off talking about the ways that Rachel isolates herself. I'll kind of start off talking about it. Rachel wasn't the character that I was sort of did the deep get analysis out of here. on. Don't, I know. No, get out of here. <laughs> but I think Rachel's really interesting around it, right? And so I think she talks about that as though something bigger is isolating her. But in a lot of ways, I find she sort of does it to herself. You know, I even see it with the way she starts off on the plane. She's really trying to engage and she's asking Tony questions as an example about basketball and sort of initiating that conversation. But then she really later disconnects from Tony and she disconnects and isolates herself more and more from the group overall. We also see this even in her backstory. When Nora's really trying to help her, Rachel is sort of physically pushing Nora out. And this even takes sort of the form of 
when Rachel leaves the table after her head injury and she shuts herself in a room and shuts Nora out and the ways that she like doesn't allow that relationship to kind of breathe and support her in the way that it needs. I think where we see Rachel's manifestation of that self-isolation, if you will, is all the comments that she makes around roots. Rachel says, I'm not interested in laying down roots. And in a later episode, she says something along the lines of, I'm not making myself at home here. I want to leave when they're talking about the shelter building competition. So not only does she say these things, but she also turns them into actions. So she's the first person with the phone trying to pass it around, asking people, pick a phone number who you know is somebody that's going to pick up. She's the one that is heading to the top of the peak to see if they're alone or not. She's the one that's leading the dive to the wreckage for the black box. She's the one that saves the black box over Nora. And it's interesting because she's definitely self-isolating herself in those quests. But those are the ways in which she kind of tries to disconnect from like the physical location, those physical roots. But we also see her disconnect and withdraw emotionally. For example, she bails in the Fatten quest. When things kind of get tough, she's like, I'm leaving. And I think we're both in agreement that when she bails, she wasn't trying to split up or fan out. She just like is trying to distance herself in some way from like finding Fatten. Mm -hmm. And the same thing happens, which is really interesting, when she goes to get the muscles. So the muscles in a way is like when she goes on that quest, she's definitely kind of going after her other goal, which is greatness and trying to be a hero and trying to provide for... The girls but by doing so she's like building that emotional connection and then the second everyone gets really sick her sense is very much i fucked up nora i found the muscles i brought them back and i held them up like a fucking golden ticket and so she like immediately is like throwing herself so it's interesting because the roots that she builds and tries to unravel both physically and emotionally it's interesting because some of the times she takes the destruction on herself, which goes back to that self-isolation and that self-destruction. I think it's really interesting too, because we often associate the concept of having a twin with always having a person, always having a person who's there for you, who sort of understands you innately, who really just sees you in a really important way. But I think for both of them, they don't feel like the other sees them. They also feel like the other overshadows them in a lot of ways. So that's why I always think about that, you know, surrounded by people, but alone, because, you know, Rachel says it as though Nora doesn't understand what that feeling is. But I think that's how Nora always feels, right? And she tries to express that back, but they just have such an entirely different experience of the world that they really have a hard time always seeing where the other person is coming from and, and understanding the experience that the other person has. They're always talking to each other about getting their own lives. And mm-hmm. so Rachel talks to Nora about, you know, wanting an excuse to become her own fucking person or instead of twisting shit in my life, try to get one of your own. And then, for example, when Quinn and Nora start dating, Rachel kind of comes in and drives a wedge in it. And she does try, I think, initially not to, but it inevitably contributes to their downfall. And so the ways in which they push each other apart but pull each other back in, it's like an, an orbit in a way. It's like they're connected. I mean, they're twins, so obviously they are connected. But the ways in which they kind of pull each other in, but also repel each other like magnets in a lot of ways. Yeah, and I think there's a really interesting parallel there between Rachel and Nora with Tony and Martha. Mm. Obviously, a lot of the times we draw lines and comparisons between the 
two pairs as people who came together to the island, who came with a very strong pre-existing relationship. And I think there's a bigger question that's being posed to us as an audience throughout season one, which is what does it mean to always have someone who is on your side and backs you? But then also like what harm is caused if that person suddenly is not on your side? I think it's interesting if we think about isolation, we think about the ways the characters isolate themselves. If you think about Leah as an example and the way that she doesn't have a lot of people in her life or Fatten and the, the lack of friends that we see in sort of her episode versus the two of them, Tony and Martha and Rachel and Nora, who have a person, who have a person who's very prominent in all of their backstories, who you see consistently in all four of those episodes but who we really see relationships come to a head on the island. We really see a lot of conflict that exists for both of them as they kind of push against each other and push against some of the actions that each other are doing in that space. And so it just brings up that question for me about, you know, what does it mean if you lose that one person, if you've always had that one person? But similarly, you know, what does it mean for those characters if, like Leah and Fatten as an example, who don't have that person in their lives if they then lost that person for themselves on the island. If we think about the ways that Rachel is isolating herself from the group, the ways that she sort of shifts and tries not to to be a part of the group always, Nora mirrors that in a lot of ways. Nora is so rarely apart from Rachel that it isolates her from the group in a way. I always think about it in the hunt for Fatten. And I wonder if it's like symbolic that, you know, this huge group bonding happens when they're hunting for Fatten. There's these huge sort of pivotal moments, whether they're pulling Rachel out of the sink sand, whether they're pulling Rachel out of the sink pit, or whether they're finding the waterfall. But Nora's isolated and stuck back on the beach. And so my question is, I mean, A, Nora isolated herself though. So why did she stay back? Especially because all of her previous actions had really signified that she didn't like to leave Rachel alone, especially in dangerous situations. It's this weird, um, it's this weird question I always have about, you know, we think a lot about Leah. We think a lot about the ways that her mental health impacts her relationship, both to the group, but also to the island. But in a lot of ways, I think Nora is the most isolated person on the island because the, once again, that concept of surrounded and not alone She's the one thing that isn't like the others because she's not a girl. She's not like one of the research participants, but she's also not a pair with the Confederate. So she's the only person who kind of sits with a foot in both of those after Lynn passes. I do think like her knowledge about what's going on just further isolates her because so much of her thinking would have to be centered around keeping this experiment together, keeping them on the path, but she isn't really able to engage in the healing that everyone else is trying to do even though she also needs it. Number one, you said that there's a lot of bonding when the girls go hunting for fat. Yeah, I call it the hunt for fat. <laughs> okay. I was just wondering. I was like... That's what it says in my notes. The hunt for fat. And what what is the thing that Rachel falls into? <laughs> a sinkhole? I called it a sink pit, a, a sink. sand pit. It's quicksand, I was I gonna. Think. I was going to fucking cut that. That's why I reset Okay, it. I was just wondering... I don't know. Allie, I'm going to disagree with you. Yeah, go for it. For a little bit here. Because I actually don't know to what extent Nora is focused on keeping the experiment intact. I think that might be what it looks like to the viewer. But I actually think that she 
doesn't really give a shit about the big E experiment. She only really cares about the purpose that it serves with her relationship with Rachel and whether or not Rachel is doing well and doing okay. And so it's interesting because where we leave the season is like Rachel's at her best. She's back in the water. She's going out for a float. She basically creates distance between Nora and Leah and says to Nora that Nora has done enough trying to keep one crazy person in check. She doesn't need two. And so just to kind of leave Leah, she's going out for a float. It's the best we've seen their relationship. I don't know to what extent Nora's really focused on the experiment. I do think it contributes to her anxiety and feeling overwhelmed. I think she does feel a responsibility for the experiment, but I think what motivates her actions more than the experiment is her relationship with Rachel. I think, I mean, there's another weight that's sitting on her. I don't mean that she's like running around keeping the experiment on track. What I mean is she's running around picking up bags and dropping them on the beach. She's doing updates to Gretchen and headquarters. She's trying to advocate for food drops. She's trying to advocate for the fact that you know, they might need lighters and stuff. There's so many missing gaps in there of things where she's been communicating with headquarters. She's asking them if it's over. She's not only carrying the weight of her sister, carrying the weight of surviving on this island. She's also carrying the weight of being the only communicator that ha- that exists between the girls and headquarters. I also think that there are instances that suggests that Nora is a little bit more invested in things than maybe we think she is. This is a question that we won't really see answered until season two, but there's one thing in particular that I picked up on, and I think it's really sticking with me right now, and it's the scene when they find the phone. And if you remember, um, that's it's Dot's phone, not when they find Jeanette's phone. I think it's Dot's phone that they find, and they're all talking about the phone calls. And if you'll remember, Rachel goes to call coach and Nora goes to take the phone. I actually encourage everyone to rewatch the scene and watch it very closely and watch Nora very closely because we often attribute her freaking out in that moment to Rachel calling coach and her trying to take the phone to her not wanting Rachel to call coach. But if you notice when the phone goes to Shelby afterwards, Nora tries to take it again. There's no reason to take it from Shelby unless she's still protecting sort of that integrity of the experiment. And so I don't think like, I think as the show goes on, she probably disconnects more. She realizes this wasn't what was pitched to her a lot because it wasn't what Gretchen pitched to her. But I do think her ties are a little bit stronger than we always give her credit for. I mean, I'm not going to disagree with you again. Your eyebrows are raised. I know that's my (laughs) cutest spot. Uh, but to add a list of scenes to rewatch this, I will agree that we do see other examples of Nora protecting the experiment in absentia, if you will, of protecting Rachel. So a key example is the black box adversarialness, which in part is related to Rachel, but the way that she kind of covers her ears and withdraws when you hear the black box. As a viewer, you first think, Maybe it's really hard for her to listen to or hear, but I think it might be because she knows something else is going on. As well as when Tony and Martha are really sick with the pill scene, when the pill is being given to Tony, look at Nora in the background. She has that kind of same pose and posture in that example as well. I think it's important to remember that it's very difficult to separate Nora's feelings about protecting the experiment from her feelings about protecting Rachel because she sees the two as connected because she believes that this is what will make Rachel better. And I mean, there's evidence to support it. Like Rachel is in a lot of ways 
like eating again, like feeling healthier, like connecting more to the group as we go through the episode. There is evidence that in some ways what's happening on the island is working for Rachel. And so I think it's really hard to separate the two of them because she does think that this experiment is what's what's doing that. If I can add one more scene, mm-hmm. and it's a bit of a jump from what we're talking about to our list of scenes to rewatch. Nora protects the experiment and by extension Rachel and what really motivates her and what is reinforcing that is interesting. And I'm not like, I'm not the usually the one that's like into the theories and stuff. Ali mostly just tells me what's happening in the fandom. But I've seen a lot of stuff lately about how Rachel will never forgive Nora. And I wanted to just highlight a scene here because I think it's really important and it's one that I always go back to. It's in Rachel's episode. And to me, it's one of the first examples when you know that the girls might be playing the detectives. And it's when Rachel's talking about the the summit and she's talking to the detectives that she was looking for some kind of sign that we weren't alone. And Daniel's response is, but that didn't materialize. And Rachel kind of looks at him with gives a kind of a funny look and says, I'm sorry, what? Like she doesn't understand the wording or what he's talking about. And then Daniel clarifies and says, you didn't find anything to suggest that you weren't alone. And Rachel's response is, I did and I didn't. I did and I didn't. The way that she kind of questions him on that materializing thing gives her a moment, in my opinion, to kind of pause and reflect and figure out how to take the power back. What I find interesting about it is she says that she did find things to be alone, but not alone but you never pan back to the detective's faces afterwards to see. And I think the detectives would probably interpret it as saying, well, she found some harmony among the girls and that's how she figured out that she wasn't alone. But I think this is a really important scene and I just want to use it as ammo to say, I don't actually think that this is an insurmountable deception for Rachel and Nora. I think Rachel is like aware of what happens. And I think this is a key piece of evidence for me that reveals that to be the case. Yeah, I think it's interesting because Rachel's sort of a tough character. She's both very straightforward, but there's also um, there's also some like layers and pieces that sort of confuse who's the most loyal, whether it's Nora or whether it's Rachel. I think often we would attribute that a lot to Nora. We'd attribute her loyalty. You know, she always puts Rachel first and she really focuses all of her efforts, everything she's doing appears to be really geared towards Rachel. But I do think in a lot of ways, Rachel has that layer of loyalty to Nora as well. She's just, she doesn't always move first on it, right? And so what I always think about with that is like, how upset Nora was when that tide scene happened, when Rachel, you know, left her to fucking drown or whatever, right? When she went going after the black box. Nora's like so upset in that scene about Rachel not rescuing her. But I think like this is often confused for us by that concept where we hear that Rachel talks about how strong of a swimmer Nora is. And so the question is often like, did Rachel think that Nora needed saving, right? With that concept of, of self-reliance and that concept of, you know, you do what you need to survive, right? It's really, really ingrained in her and really surrounded by her. I think what's hard for Nora in that scene is, you know, Nora's literally putting her life on the line to bring Rachel to the island. She's putting everything on hold, putting everything in danger to be able to bring Rachel, to be able to help Rachel. And she feels in that moment that, you know, Rachel isn't helping her. But I think, you know, Rachel says no sacrifice, no gain. 
And so if we think about Rachel learning what happened with Nora, in a weird way, like Rachel might actually respect what Nora did. (laughs) I mean, especially like if she didn't know it was aimed at her. I think like once it becomes personal for Rachel, it changes a little bit, but it is that sort of, it's a bold move. And I think in a lot of ways, like Rachel really respects bold moves. I think it's just, you know, Rachel has this perception that nobody will help you but yourself. And because she holds that perception for like nobody will help her, we don't often see her go out of her way to help other people. There's actually only like one very, very clear instance that I could think where she showed that initiative, which is when she swam out to save Leah, right? So that's as a part of that arc that she takes throughout the the season. But Nora conversely always goes out of her way to help people. And so they really sit at odds around it thinking about, you know, how they're supporting the people around them versus supporting themselves. This is why I wholeheartedly believe that everybody needs to participate in at least one team sport. Yeah. Like, I think individual sports, not for me. Yeah, but I think, like, that's so interesting, though, right? Like, it's interesting because when Rachel had that interaction with her coach, when she had that talk with her coach, and then she came home, And her family, you know, they put off that trip to France and all that stuff. I always wonder, like, was she ready to give up when she came home? Was she kind of, like, was her family saying that they were going to come to Nationals, the piece that tipped the scale, the part that made her unwell, um, the event that sort of started her bulimia? Um, Because her sense of being unwell is so connected to this idea of greatness, but also to the idea of connection and connection in particular to her family. It's interesting, yeah, that she didn't pick a team sport because she's looking for that connection. She's looking for that that sense of camaraderie in a way. She picked something where the pressure solely rested on her and nobody can help bear the load. And so almost in a way, like she was sort of stretching and reaching for that sense of individuality. But in, in a way, it just further isolated her when she was already trying to escape that sense of isolation. So by pursuing swimming and by trying to, you know, build this connection with her family around it, she picked a sport that just further isolated her. Well, and it's interesting because in a lot of respects, it seems like her family really recognizes that she's talented at it. But they still, that recognition doesn't really translate into like status, Mm -hmm. if you will. And so when she comes home from that conversation with coach, I think her mom says, you smell like chlorine and excellence. And she calls her Athena, which we talked in Rachel's episode about how, you know, Athena is a god, right? And so in a lot of ways, they're using the words that really place her on a pedestal in that way. And it's contrasted in the way that they almost see Nora. And it's an inverse because a lot of the times in a family, if you're like a sports prodigy, your weekends are taken up. And we know that's the case in Rachel, but they're like the golden child. Whereas it it seems that the parents' energy and attention is almost more on Nora because they're more similar to Nora in a lot of ways. And so... It's Nora that's going to the Paris Design Expo. It's Nora that gets this freedom to go to summer session. It's Nora who excels in words and words even when they're younger and it's contrasted to all these medals. And I think as parents, you're also trying to balance everything likely. And so you could think Rachel has a lot of these outward kind of symbols of achievement. You know, she has all these medals and they're not participation medals. They're like, she's on a nationals roster. She would have been Stanford bound if maybe it wasn't for her body type or her physique, perhaps, right? And so 
it isn't for a lack of talent or drive or skill or any of those things. And so maybe that's what they're trying to do as parents is to like balance that with Nora. Well, I think it's interesting too, because Rachel says to Nora, she needs to get a life, right? And like, it's a particular bad sting. She says it is a part of that big fight that they have, right? And it's also one of the moments where we see Nora at her rawest. It's kind of like the most manipulative that we've ever seen her. She's really lashing out to hurt Rachel during that, that sort of like physical altercation they have on the beach. But I think like when she tells Nora to get a life, it's so connected and so rooted to Quinn because Nora did do that in a way and Rachel tore it down. But I feel like Rachel's using the wrong words because I wonder if in a way her going after something that's so different from her parents' interests, if she sees that as getting a life, if she sees that as finding her own sort of authentic life, if finding something that's separate and different, and then sees the way that Nora kind of follows in her parents' passions and their sort of interests as not separating herself from them and as continuing upon this on this path that they've laid out for her. And like, I have to like think about that line and I think about like how much that would have hurt because Nora did do that and tore it down. But I wonder to what degree Rachel still sees that path as Nora, that Nora was taking as her not getting her own life, as her still being connected in a way that Rachel kind of looks down on. Well, it's also really challenging because Nora did get a life and the life that she got was reading books, right? Because she was spent so much time at the gym in the stands, you know, when you have a achieving kind of kid, whether it's in like, like athletics or academics, it affects the kind of whole family, right? If you have somebody in competitive sports, you can't just like leave one of the kids elsewhere, like they're coming too, and they're in the stands. And so Nora created her own life and world in that way, in the way that she's bookish, and that gives her some freedoms as well in the way that we see her go to summer session as an example and like that is her getting a life and that life is an extension of the kind of life that she's been able to lead because of the ways in which she's supported Rachel by way of extension I guess. Well it's kind of like the the fatal flaw of Nora in that she puts everyone before herself and she puts Rachel before everyone else, right? If you think of like what's important to her. So she even talks, you know, she mentions sitting on the stands and she mentions doing those things, but she she's looking for that connection too, just with Rachel in the same way. And so she doesn't always seem to mind it. It's really, I think that point when everything got torn apart with Quinn, that she was really able to see how like living and centering her life around Rachel was a bit destructive for her and was a bit harmful for her. And, you know, it's really connected to that that wondering of, like, who do you want to be? You know, Quinn talks to Nora a lot about finding herself. But I think the question even me as, like, an audience person has is, you know, who is Nora? And is finding yourself really rooted in change? Or is it in recognizing who you've been all along? You know, Quinn really wants Nora to put herself first, but Nora isn't ready to let go of Rachel. And I think in a lot of ways, her sense of self and her sense of self-value is tied to how good of a sister she is. Somewhere in her life that really got rooted into her. And so when she thinks about herself as a good person, herself as having meaning in her life, she can't separate that from Rachel being well and from her need for Rachel to be well. And just to add another scene to the list of scenes to rewatch with that in mind <laughs> is when Rachel talks to the detectives and says, I'm actually older. I'm mm. 18 years older. 18 years. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an old soul. 
I am 18 minutes older. And that's when you kind of see that flip side to some extent of the relationship where Rachel kind of self-reflects and, and sees the care that Nora has put in and throws it back and says, I'm actually older, but she's been the one that's protecting me. She always kind of threw herself in front of, in between me and the world. I have an interesting question for you. Oh, I love questions. It's not, it's not a straightforward question, like a yes or no question. I have to kind of... It's just interesting? It's just interesting. And not straightforward. And not straightforward. Okay, hit me. We talk about consent a lot in this show. We talk about the girls consenting to be on the island, them existing on the island, to what degree consent ever really took a took place or took a piece in things, right? There's that scene in Rachel's episode when Rachel's in the, you know, inpatient treatment center, right? And so it's right after assumingly something really bad happened with her bulimia, you know, she's being carefully monitored. And Nora comes to visit her. You know, they have their fun little chat about the vision board. And Rachel asks Nora to help her. And I think about this scene a lot. I think about the way that Nora seems to navigate scenes after that, the way that Nora really interacts with Rachel. I think about how Nora seems disappointed in the way that Rachel's really reacting on the island at the beginning. I think about the ways that she's watching Rachel in the weight room. And I wonder if Nora used Rachel asking her for help as a justification for putting her on the island. If she looks at this bigger piece of Rachel needs help, and I think I know how to help her because she can't help herself. And at this one point in time, she asked me to help her. And is Nora using that as kind of a roundabout justification to say that Rachel did ask for this? And so that's my question is, did Rachel ask for this? Uh, I think you framed that as a question, but I think you made a statement. <laughs> and you're asking me, do you agree? Yes or no? I guess, yeah. Uh, I will agree with you. It doesn't have to be, did Rachel actually ask for this? It can be more, did does Nora think that Rachel asked for this? I think is the bigger thing. I think so. And I think that we see Rachel in a setting that a lot of folks would agree with is the appropriate form of treatment for bulimia. It's a residential inpatient facility. There's some sort of therapeutic element. And Rachel kind of says that it's not really working for her. She doesn't really say it in those words, but what she says is that, number one, she's not really buying into the therapy and that conversation about the golden retriever and the fact that her vision board just still includes a bunch of different synonyms for greatness and accomplishments but then also ask Nora for help. And the help that she asks for isn't, can you help me be well? It's, can you get me out of here so I can just go back to doing what I'm doing on my quest for great greatness, where I think of my body as second and the quest is first, right? And so I think it's easier for Nora to make the connection with Gretchen because she wants to find this other pathway where Rachel doesn't feel the need to seek and achieve in that setting. And so... I think when Nora is hearing about it from Gretchen, she always thinks about Rachel first anyways, but I think she thinks of it also as a place where maybe it would be so separate and it's a different form of treatment that maybe it could work. Well, like in a weird way, alternative medicine, right? Like this sort of mainstream approach to dealing with it wasn't working for Rachel. So in, what, in, in how many ways does Nora see this as an alternative path? Well, and Nora's, uh, Nora's bright too. So like there are lots of 
interventions and examples in the literature about therapy in the wild, if you will. You see a lot of things about horse therapy, equine therapy, I think it's called, and you know, building that connection with animals. I don't think this is what Gretchen's is after. I don't think that like the snake or the goat are meant to necessarily be therapeutic, but we do see really concrete emerging evidence about therapy, quote, in the wild, if you will. Well, they're they're not that uncommon either. I've seen some people talk online being like, you know, one of the things that they really flag is unrealistic about the experiment is that parents would send their kids away for two months without any expectation of talking with them. It's actually more common than you think it is, especially in like pretty dire crisis situations. Like a lot of the therapeutic retreats, like I know that even happen up around here, like sometimes it is zero contact. You'll receive updates from like the administrators of the program, but in a lot of times, especially if we're thinking about um, like treatment or about like addiction support programs, like you are often like completely removed from your family and your friends with the assumption that those are a bit of triggers for you. So you're, you can be deep in the woods and like not speak to your family for, for two months. And those, those are kind of like some common practices that exist. So I always think it's funny when people say like, Oh, nobody would let that happen. I'm like, no, as someone who's done like kind of youth work and seen people who have gone into some of those programs, I'm like, it's actually more common than you think it would be. I just think like a lot of the times I think we like we're trying to think of something that's like healing or restorative we're more critical of it in some respects but like some of the things that like society deems as being like undermining or harmful we like kind of let happen i don't know no it's true though and like it's not even just like therapy that happens in the wild as some institutions as an example like you can be put under a watch and not interact with your family for a, a certain period of time right and so there's there's like pretty strong literature pretty strong Um, sort of case evidence that for some people depending on how serious what they're going through is like being completely removed from your family and your friends and being able to really focus on your healing without some of that other noise going on is actually really healing and so it's actually not as uncommon as you would think it is for people to you know for two months especially if like the tale that Gretchen told is that they're really deep in the woods for you not to communicate with them for that amount of time. Well, and if I may, mm-hmm. just to talk about this a little bit further, there's a few examples of people kind of being held with or without their consent. So Becca being 5150, we see that allusion to in Shelby's episode. Gretchen not being able to leave when she gets intaked as well. Leah, her parents kind of agreeing to let her go. And now we're making a bit of a case for Rachel, by extension of kind of Nora, saying you're going to do this. And so I think our broader theory is that the parents have some knowledge or involvement of it. And so maybe it's a commonality across all the characters. But I just wanted to kind of throw that in the mix, too. I think this is a good spot to shift into talking a little bit about Rachel and Nora's relationship to others in the group. And so talking about the ways that they sort of like pair with others in the group. When I kind of came into doing this, in a lot of ways, I was like, well, I mean, all Nora does is focus on Rachel. So how many people can she really pair or partner with otherwise? And actually more than you would think, to be honest. Um, One of the ones that I really like, though, is Shelby. I think Nora and Shelby are interesting because they don't actually interact that much, really. Both of them are really situated in their own kind of groups. Nora really centered in her pair with Rachel, but also that trio that happens with Leah sometimes. 
And then on the other end, you have, you know, Shelby, Tony, Martha. But I think it's really in the shelter building episode where they have a lot of like connection that really builds between the two of them. A lot of it is really centered around, you know, Nora sitting with Shelby and having a conversation with her around Shelby's annoyance over Tony. And Nora really sees how Shelby's struggling and she sort of marks it as anger in a really interesting way. Nora really takes this opportunity to build and connect with Shelby over the way that Shelby's feeling about Tony, right? And so still thinking of, you know, the way Tony's kind of like being really hard in that group and kind of lashing about the shelter building competition and Nora trying to empathize with Shelby and her frustration over that. It really shifts into Shelby reading that passage from Death of a Salesman, which when you really look back on it and you're thinking about, you know, Shelby giving her interpretation and then Nora hilariously being like, you analyzed this wrong. I mean, I'm always just kind of like, why Nora? Why do you have to be like that? But what Nora tells Shelby is that really what the passage is talking about is that need to have your own authentic life and the need to live for yourself as opposed to for someone else. And when that happens, we don't really understand what it means because we haven't gotten Shelby's episode yet. But later on, we really understand that it's pushing Shelby in a lot of ways to think about how she has to live for herself as opposed to for her dad, the way that she has to embrace, you know, the person that she really is and take steps forward to that. But I think in a lot of ways, that's also connected to Nora and the ways that Nora needs to live for herself and not for Rachel. In all of the paths that we see Shelby take, the ways that we see her navigate, we see her orient herself around Dave, we see her try to fit what he needs for her. Nora takes a similar path with Rachel. She takes this path of trying to be who Rachel needs her to be, be the person that Rachel needs her to be. And I think the two of them have so many nice parallels. They have so many parallels in the ways that they try to support the people around them with the people around them being in crisis as well. You know, both of them have someone very close to them. They lose them, right? Both of them lose someone, Quinn and Becca. And both of them kind of find out secondhand as well. So they're very both connected to that person. But when those people pass away, they're very removed from them as well. And the people who really caused them to lose that person, so Dave and and Rachel, right? They are still tied to them in such an important way and are in a lot of ways unable to let go of that tie because that's the path they chose. That's the person they chose, even though it really caused them to lose this other person who was so incredibly important to them. And yeah, I think it's really beautiful in a way. And I think it's beautiful in the way that, you know, both of them are still trying to uplift members of the group, but are both carrying that and still carrying that relationship piece that they're struggling with. Yeah, and it's so interesting. I love what you just said about how they both lost somebody close to them and the person who they choose to kind of hold up and follow instead is Rachel and Dave. And it's interesting because I think as I've mentioned before in this podcast, I usually, when we watch, I go through and I write down all the interactions and all the scenes. And I think with Nora and Shelby, they have the Instagram conversation when they're having a bath and they find the talkies so at shelter building competitions contest later on they have that doubt the salesman conversation and that's all i have written down for them in terms yeah. of direct interaction they're both really focused on the other people in their group right and so in the same way that i would say nora doesn't interact with a lot of other people we talked about this um a bit earlier in tony and martha's episode they kind of are the, that that trio 
are so centered on each other, right? And so it's so interesting, a lot of ways you forget it, all the ways that the group is kind of truncated and separated and grouped off like that. And it makes sense in a lot of ways, but it's also, I don't always think when I'm thinking back that I, I remember that it exists like that. Maybe I just hold up those group scenes bigger in my head because they're so fantastic. Right. No wonder Dot and Fatten are so close. It's like they only have each other, right? <laughs> there's like two trios and then it's like them shooting the shit, like having a lovely old grand time because there's these trios of chaos existing <laughs> elsewhere. What's interesting is that I actually have a Shelby and Rachel parallel. Ooh. And so I love the scene of the hike. I actually like the trio of Shelby, Leah, and Rachel, and they're the trio that goes on the hike at the beginning. And Shelby asks about college plans and talks about Stanford as an example. And what's interesting is once they get to the summit and the peak, Rachel kind of flips at both Shelby and Leah and says, is there nothing waiting for you at home? Why are you not looking or more upset that there's nothing else out here? Is there nothing waiting for you? And it's interesting because if you if you look at the episode when the plane goes by and then Shelby's episode opens up and they're all on the couch at the fake TV interview, mm-hmm. Rachel's also really withdrawn and looks really sad. Yeah. And she's the only one, like Shelby, that have a lot of feelings about it. It's interesting because when the plane first flies over, Rachel is really happy and she's hugging Nora and she's really excited and Shelby isn't at all excited. But once it kind of sinks in that they might be rescued, Rachel is kind of withdrawn and really sad. And then later on, after Rachel has her period, she talks about how she did all this just to be a machine. And they have a conversation about how now that she just has a body... And here we see Rachel say that it's time to call it and she's ready to call it. And she says, fuck it if I know what I'm going home to. And it's an interesting callback to when Rachel is in that early episode talking to Shelby about, don't you have anything waiting for you? That Rachel is now like, I don't know what I'm going home to. And we see that kind of manifest in the scene after the plane flies over where they're both kind of withdrawn. Yeah, I've always thought that mountaintop scene was so interesting, right? Because... So many ways, none of them have something that they're going home to. And even Rachel, when she's talking about it, like that's still when she's telling everyone she has Stanford that she's going back for. Like those are the things she's working to. But in so many ways, she doesn't have anything either. And a lot of that is her connecting that to people not having enough drive, right? She's like, is there nothing pushing you? Is there nothing pushing you? But there isn't anything pushing Rachel either, other than this sort of presumption that this is what she needs to do and that she needs to keep working towards something, which I guess you could say is swimming too, right? Like if no one is saying, if her parents aren't sitting there pushing and pushing her, then what is really driving her to be great at swimming? It's herself. She's a self-driven person. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Why do you always call it swimming? I don't know. Sorry, diving. Is diving an extension of swimming? Or <laughs> well, yeah. is diving... Like, I understand it's in the water, but, like, you're always, like, she, when she's swimming, and I'm like, she's not Michael Phelps. She's driving <laughs> off a platform. I don't know. You end up in the water. Yeah. You have to swim up after you dive. You have to be a swimmer in order to dive. You can't drown. I, yeah, I would almost... But, like, is it swimming or is it climbing? <laughs> no, because that's not Because you climb the water. a ladder. Yeah, but in order to get back up, you can <laughs> climbing. Yeah, you know what? Sorry, I will call it diving from now on, maybe. I don't know. I mean, like, we do see evidence that she's a strong... Cl- like, that she... We do see evidence that she's a strong swimmer. 
But we also she, see she talks about being a strong swimmer a lot too. But we also see that she's a strong climber. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we'll start calling it. Can climbing. we call it climbing? Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> no, I really like what you're saying though about the ways that Shelby and Rachel parallel each other. I think what's interesting too is they both suffer very public downfalls in a lot of ways, which I think they have like a bit of a performance act, like a performance aspect to the the things that they do, whether Rachel's competing while diving or Shelby's competing in pageants. It's just like that thing that we talked about between Martha and Rachel too, that competitive nature, you know, Shelby has it as well. But I think both of them have these sort of moments of crisis that happen in a very public space. So Rachel, when she's diving and she hits her head and then Shelby, when she starts crying during the pageant with, with Becca, right? And sort of these, these very big culminating moments that happen in sort of like a, in a public space. I think I'd like to talk a little bit too about Nora and Tony. I touched on it just a couple of minutes ago, but you know, I think Nora sees Rachel and Tony a lot and sees um, sees some of the ways that Tony lashes out as something that is recognizable to her, that she knows, that she understands, and that she can support with. I think, you know, we see some instances of her really trying to build a relationship with Tony. Um, there's a couple of, like short montages of them like carrying water and stuff like that and sort of laughing together. There's also the moments when the shelter building competition, uh, Nora just was out there talking to people. And I wonder if it's mostly because she wasn't on a team with Rachel. So it's in those moments when Rachel isn't around and Nora is that, you know, we actually get to see her build some of those relationships and do some of those things and operates in some of those spaces when she knows that Rachel's safe and she's not watching her, not worrying about her. But, you know, there's a lot of moments in that episode where, you know, when Tony comes back and is upset or about that the fact that they sort of changed the plan, Nora comes over and tries to show her the plan. And when Tony is upset and trying to like help build their structure, Nora comes over and tries to help her with it. She thinks she understands Tony's anger in a tangible way and tries to relate to her around that and, and relate to her through her own experiences with her sister. But I think what's important to note is you know, Tony's anger can be really reckless and explosive at time. It's sort of like a like an impulse thing that sort of like bursts out at her. But I think like Rachel's can be a little bit more deliberate sometimes and, and almost calculated. And like she uses it to push things forward in a way that Tony doesn't. Tony's a lot more reactionary. So I think like Nora feels like she understands it. But I don't actually know if she does understand it. Yeah, I think she gets there to some extent towards the later part in the season. As an example, after Tony is really sick, we see Nora taking care of Tony. She's the one that says, you need to drink water, you need Mm -hmm. to stay hydrated. And that approach seems to work. And the reason I say that is because after Tony and Shelby kiss, Tony is telling Shelby that she needs to drink water and kind of extends that care Mm -hmm. forward. So I think they kind of figure it out to some extent as they get through the the show. Weird acts of service stuff there though, eh? Well, that's my love language, so. Yeah, your love language is acts of service. It's funny because you wanted to make a comparison between Shelby and Nora, and then I wanted to make a comparison between Shelby and Nora, and then you wanted to make a comparison between Nora and Tony, and now I want to make a comparison between Rachel and Tony. Probably not very thrilling for listeners to hear me recount that because it'll be very quick, but... <laughs> Uh, what's interesting is Rachel 
interacts with Tony in a different way to some extent than how she interacts with the other girls. Rachel and Tony are paired for the icebreaker, and we see Rachel really initiating the conversation with Tony, asking Tony questions. They bond over sports, and even though they're differently oriented around sports, you know, it really bothers Rachel that Tony's wasting her potential. We see them kind of bonded from there. A key example of that is later in the first episode when they're playing Never Have I Ever. Rachel's first thing is never have I ever thrown my own piss at someone and everyone laughs and it really kind of breaks the ice of the whole group. It's kind of the first time they laugh together because it was really, really tense up to that point. As well as we see Rachel being an ally to Tony in the muscle scene. And so I have a hope for season two, which is I hope that these two become pals because I think that they have the bones to really see each other and understand each other and maybe like bring out the best in each other as well because they're both kind of competitive but they're not competitive in a way that they would be competitive with each other and I think they could bond over yeah just some of those shared attributes and they have a similar sense of humor and a similar kind of duo and I think they could actually become good friends so I hope for that I think they're competitive in slightly different ways too right yeah. they're both competitive but they approach it differently you know Rachel's kind of competitive in a, like, I will beat everyone else. And Tony's sort of competitive in, like, a... I think it's the team sport thing, though, right? It's like Tony is used to being competitive in a team sport environment, and Rachel is used to being competitive in a solo environment. So they just approach things a little bit differently. We've talked a lot throughout this podcast about the concept of seen versus unseen and the question of who sees what and who sees who. It exists really potently for Fatten, it exists for Leah, it exists for almost all the characters in a way, which is, I mean, just very relatable to, you know, having been a teenage girl and just, you know, wanting someone to really like see and understand you and understand where you're coming from. Nora, throughout a lot of the show, you know, she can't help but watch Rachel so nervously. And she really has a role of being responsible for seeing. You know, both her and Lynn, they're responsible for watching. They're responsible for monitoring. And monitoring is just another method of watching, right? I think sometimes it removes a little bit of the understanding, of the comprehending, of the empathizing that you would normally think exists. But it is like another just sort of facet of that. And so Nora and Lynn really have these these very formal roles where they're responsible for seeing what's going on. And... The way that they approach it, though, is a little bit in conflict with the way that Leah sees in a weird way. So sometimes I would say that, like, Leah sees more. Nora juggles both of this this battle to kind of watch Rachel and also to watch everyone else around her. But she misses things and she misses pieces. And similarly, like, Leah really steps back and is able to see things. So, for example, if you think of the plane, like, Shelby going to the bathroom... Leah's the only person that we see see that, but she struggles to kind of understand all of them. If you think too, she sees Shelby going down to the water. She sees these things, but she can't understand always whether they're significant or insignificant. And so sometimes she attributes significance to things that aren't as significant. And so the way that they sort of exist, Nora and Leah, they're situated in kind of natural opposition to each other, but they mirror each other, right? You know, they're both artistic, they're both observational, they're both kind of quirky. 
But Leah is all in her feelings and Nora really knows how to detach. And so that means that the lens that they use to watch things, the lens that they use to see things is very different. And you know, I always think about when Nora's trying to help Leah and she's trying to get her to journal. She talks and tells her that she should spend some time writing down what she sees and she hears and she knows. But what that really does, if we're thinking about the way that Leah sees the world around her, it's that knows portion. It takes things from being observational to being innate feelings, and it makes it really difficult for Leah to separate some of her suspicions, her conspiracies, her sense of something being so wrong from the things that she's also seeing. So it really connects them. Whereas Nora's really able to step back and watch things and able to detach herself in a way. And I think it's that difference between seeing and monitoring from like understanding and documenting that's really interesting between the two of them. I try not to put too much stock in episode one when I think about how it informs my overall theories, just because I know it was a pilot and there's a good amount of time that happened in between them. And I'm not sure to what extent the full narrative has been fleshed out in episode one. So I'm going to caveat my thoughts with that. I will say something related to that see versus unsee is... Leah's kind of monologue when she's on the island on the beach and she says that without the book she really starts to notice things and she talks about Nora's smile how it can mean a million and one things with just a look or a smile or something like that and then we see Nora give the book back to Leah she finds the book and she gives it back to her and I think Allie and I really struggle with to what extent does Nora know about the experiment? Does she know about the girl's past? Is she manipulating the situation to be therapeutic for them? But I see this as an example of even if it wasn't as insidious, which is one of our favorite words, <laughs> as really manipulating the situation and knowing the whole history that it was a book that is really important to her because of the situation with Jeffrey... She does still see that the book means something to her in the plane. And I think it was curated by Gretchen that the book would still be there and untainted, right? So she still kind of makes that connection knowingly or unknowingly. And I think that's a really clear example of see and unsee and how it plays out in their relationship. Because it's really connected to Nora needing to be able to move on the island under the radar. I always think too about, you know, Nora and Dot and their connection as well. Um, And, you know, Dot's sort of like monologue where she talks about how you're safer when you're not seen. And for Nora on the island, that is so true. Like she's safer when she can operate without people watching her. She's safer when she operates without people having suspicions about her. So sure, you can look at the book scene and say, oh, like Nora was just giving the book to Leah because Nora's a reader and she understands the value of books and she's just trying to give her her book back. But I think there's other layers and nuance into that in Nora starts to really flag and see the ways that Leah is also watching. And I think any way that she can distract her, any way that she can kind of take her gaze off the things around her, she's going to do, right? And any way that she can kind of monitor and watch Leah and and make sure that Leah is not looking at her, she's going to do it to the best of her ability. And I mean, she's quite effective. Leah never suspects Nora, not until the very end, like... 
Nora is never one of the people who's on Leah's radar. But yeah, I think it goes back to that that idea of like, are you safer when you're not seen? Well, I think you bringing Dot into it is really interesting because I think it's interesting to think about how Dot sees both Rachel and Nora. So with Rachel, Dot gives her the mirror to take up to the summit and trusts her with the only mirror extremely early on. Mm-hmm. And also later in the season, trusts her as the transition, as that kind of second in command. She gives her the lighter. And the way that she talks to Rachel, even when they split off, she says, oh, you know, you're kindred fucking spirits with Leah. And Dot, we talked about as a leader, supports people in a lot of different ways. And so her talking to Rachel and kind of treating her as equal in that conversation is really interesting. But in contrast, Dot talks early to Nora about books, man, can't get into them, and doesn't really place stock in Nora's knowledge. And that manifests later on with Dot not trusting Nora to take care of a fire. And then Nora kind of recounts it to Dot and talks about all the different steps. But it's just interesting how Dot really innately trusts Rachel from the beginning, but distrusts or doesn't hold the same amount of stock in Nora's skills. I think, like... Rachel has a practicality about her that Dot understands, right? Like, she's not someone that you would ever think... She's she's someone that you have this confidence that she would just figure shit out, right? Like, I think Dot recognizes that drive. It's the same as, you know, when Dot's talking about one foot in front of the other, like, you keep trudging. Like, that's like Rachel's fucking motto, right? Like, you keep fucking working day in, day out. You work, you work, you work. And I think Dot season recognizes that where... Nora's knowledge is a little bit more, yeah, ingrained in books and stuff in a way that, you know, Dot doesn't see that sort of practical application that it would have and doesn't respect it in the same way. I also just want to talk a little bit about the seen versus unseen in terms of Nora's role as Confederate. So we have a lot of evidence about how Nora sees Leah really early on. That journaling example when they're talking over the cliffside is a key one when she talks about writing about what you see and feel. We've just talked about the book as well. Something I just want to throw out is I don't think if anyone else was the Confederate that they would hone in on Leah so much as the one to be cautious about or the one to really monitor. I think more people or most people would hone in on Rachel because of the way in which she's so seeking and achieving and accomplishing and doesn't really let anyone stand in her way in terms of driving people and pushing people up the hill, out to the wreckage, that intensity that she has that is motivated on getting people out that you think a confederate, you think... She's relentless in her pursuit of trying to get at people out. Someone is either going to have a negative experience as a result of this, i.e. Leah. Like that situation could have gone a different way as an example. It could have been not so great for Leah. Or she's so relentless that maybe she would have figured it out. Maybe we need to be more worried about her. However, Nora, because she's the other confederate, she's not really worried about it. She doesn't really see it. And so I think that that's interesting. And it's interesting even in the context of thinking about had Lynn have made it, would she have had Rachel on her radar? She wouldn't have known Nora was the other confederate. And would that have been another tension that existed among the girls as well? 
Well, Nora's very specifically attuned to the risk that Leah plays. You're right. She's she's never spooked by Rachel ever. If we think about the things even that the audience finds scary about Rachel or the things that scared people about Rachel, we often think about that scene when Rachel grabs Leah's foot underwater and a lot of people really attribute a lot of riskiness or danger to Rachel from that scene, but it doesn't really it doesn't really impact Nora. Nora never flags Rachel as the biggest risk. She never flags Rachel as the one they need to be the most scared of. It's always Leah. And she's focused on Leah in a way that other people do things. You know, if we think about Leah taking out into the water, we think about that moment of that sort of like break that she has. Shelby has one too. Shelby has a break as well when she cuts her hair. Other people have these sort of like moments of crisis, these these sort of culminations of their journeys of emotions. But for whatever reason, Nora is like Leah is the dangerous one. And in some ways, I think it might be connected to emotions. You know, Leah has sort of a lack of control over her emotions in a way that I think Nora finds a bit dangerous. She doesn't find like the physical danger as, as scary or the physical actions as scary as she does about sort of the unpredictability of Leah's emotions, the unpredictability of the path that Leah's going to take. And Leah's inability to sort of detach from those emotions sometimes in a way that like Nora really embodies and, and really holds, right? They're, they're an interesting trio, right? Like the three of them do so many things together and they they walk so many paths together. They, they do so many sort of like mini journeys together. And in a lot of ways, Leah is really similar to Rachel. But in some weird way, she's also like this funny combination of Rachel and Nora, though, too, right? And sort of Nora sits, if you think of Rachel and Leah as being polar opposites, Nora sits kind of in between in some ways, too. And so I think there's something about Leah that she sees and she understands and she recognizes the threat in that I don't think anybody else would do because it's so personally a threat to Nora. I don't know if it's because of the ways that Leah relates to Rachel and she's scared that Leah's going to take Rachel down a path that Nora's hoping that Rachel won't go or what that kind of is. But yeah, she's very attuned to, to Leah being someone to be scared of. And it like leads to that point that we always wonder, you know, what makes Nora willing to consider suffocating Leah? What makes this that important? What makes her that big of a threat? I also think she's kind of scared that Leah might hurt someone, right? And I think it, it is connected to her almost hurting Rachel when that swimming is happening. And like, yeah, she just, the fear isn't sudden in the same way as it is when Rachel grabs onto Leah's ankle. It's like this steady incline. And so to Nora, Leah presents this sort of like outward threat in a way that she, th- I think she thinks everyone else presents a very inward threat. In a lot of ways, Nora doesn't see Rachel as a threat because she's used to being kind of the safe punching bag for Rachel. And so she's one of those people, you know, if you ask the question of who do you let hurt you, sometimes it's like those people that you're really close with because you know that they're a safe, like that you know that you're a safe person for them to lash out at, right? And they know that you're a safe person to lash out. It doesn't make it right, but like it does happen, especially in like close relationships and so the people that you are closest to can sort of cause you the most harm but they also feel the safest lashing out at you 
you know, we're repeatedly told that Rachel has this sort of issue with throwing blame externally of like blaming others around her. We see it with Leah all the time. She's like, well, you did this or you didn't work hard enough at this. But Nora in some ways doesn't do that. You know, she has legit reasons to blame Rachel. She has legit reasons to like blame Rachel for some of the things that happened in her life. She has reasons to blame Rachel for, you know, sort of that divide that happened between her and Quinn. But we never see her do it. We never really see her attach emotions to that other than sort of like the shock and upset that she has at the beginning. So I'm always questioning and I'm always wondering, you know, how deep is Nora's anger? How deep is her pain? How deep is her struggle? It's almost like she she can't separate this need to help Rachel because it would mean that she would have to gear and focus all of this anger on Rachel. If we're thinking of it like as like a bit of a tree analogy, Nora's kind of like a sapling. She's like something that's very bendy, um, very flexible. She's always like moving and adapting and changing and shifting to be around like that sort of like immovable, inflexible rod that is Rachel as she tries to help Rachel kind of like navigate. But in so many ways, she's putting aside her own trauma, her own blame, her own frustration, and is not really dealing with those emotions. And I do think that's a really dangerous thing and is just as risky on the island as everything that's going on with Leah. If I can leverage your tree analogy, I think it also goes back to the Rachel not being interested in laying down roots and the ways in which both of them are rooted to each other, but also how they uproot each other as well. And thinking too about what the purpose of roots are and how they're nourishing, but sometimes they can also be harmful. And so roots while they can carry the goodness, they can also carry harmful things from soil, that contamination, and they can really affect the whole system. And so Nora is like kind of Rachel's roots and that she's the family, you know, she is your roots, but also is that kind of supportive root infrastructure for Rachel too and the ways in which they support and reinforce each other, but also don't. It both like asserts and reverses roots, like that relationship, I guess. Growth and regrowth. Look out. <laughs> I think now feels like a good time to hop into three words. What do you think? Per the outline? Is that time? <laughs> per, the, per the very formal whiteboard outline that we're working on. I mean, I was trying to make it feel a little bit more spontaneous than that, but is there a very formal whiteboard outline? Yes. <laughs> Thanks for calling it out, Rachel. You're welcome. <laughs> um, I fuck. Um, I can kind of start us off. Um, I'll start with Nora. So the words that I have, or the three words that I have to describe Nora, the first one is gentle. I think there's a gentle way that she approaches things. A lot of the movement she does is kind of in the background, as we talked about, and she shifts and moves pieces and I think she does it in a very gentle way and so she's very adept at trying to get people to a place where they feel like they're making decisions for themselves but she's kind of guided them in that direction but she has a very gentle approach in the way that she does things. I also have responsible both in her backstory and on the island she come she's a very responsible character right she's really focused on wellness overall and thinking about those pieces and thinking a little bit long term and you know you can trust her with some of these these big pieces these things that are happening you can trust her with tasks you can trust her to sort of navigate some of these paths in a way that I think there's a lot of maturity around it for her 
And then my last word to describe Nora is idealistic. This is a tricky one, but I think she does believe in a better world and she does believe to a degree in something better and working towards something better. And, you know, she believes in sort of creating this space that allows for the things she wants to happen to happen. And so even if we think about the island, to what degree she knew what she was getting into is 100% debatable. And I would actually say I don't think she really knew what she was getting into. But when it was pitched to her, she's like visionary in that way that that Gretchen isn't, but not in visionary in that she's designing what it is, but she can see it. She can see this sense and she can very much focus um, on sort of that good overall thing that we're working towards. And I think that's something that she holds really core to herself. I like those. And I like in particular responsible and idealistic. I think that's what makes her a good confederate because she is now the only one and she is responsible and mature in a way that the other girls aren't. And a key example of that even, and we've talked about it before, is how she goes to summer session by herself for an extended period of time, no parents living at residence doing her own thing, right? I think it's interesting because I think you could think about Nora and the way that Gretchen chose her, which we'll talk about a bit more later on, and say that she was naive or able to be manipulated, or able to be controlled. But while some of those things might be true, I like the framing in gentle, responsible, and idealistic, because Nora does buy into that. And we know that that's a characteristic of her even before Gretchen. It wasn't like she was manipulated to feel this particular way about the experiment. She was like that before. She wanted to kind of learn about the world and make it into something a little bit different. And that you see that manifest in the conversation that she has about Gretchen and even the way that she challenges Gretchen about who needs to be responsible and accountable for Quinn's death. My words for Nora are not as thoughtful as yours, perhaps. Uh, I have observant and thoughtful, which are two things I think that really play out together in that she observes things and then she's thoughtful in the way that she kind of uses them. So I think thoughtful oftentimes is always associated with positivity, but I think in the way that she's a confederate, it is also a bit strategic to some extent. And then the other piece I have is cerebral. And I didn't want to pick like intelligent or smart or quirky. I wanted it to be more tied to how she's also creative and critical and thoughtful and approaches the world in that light. It's not just that she's like book smart, but the way that her worldview is shaped is more cerebral. So I pick cerebral as opposed to some of the other synonyms for smarts. If we shift over two words to describe Rachel, my first one is ambitious. I don't think we're going to argue with that one. She's ambitious. She wants things. She goes after things. She's not content to kind of sit at like a mediocrity level. Like she wants greatness. And that is something that really drives her. And she wants greatness, whether it is in diving or I mean, swimming. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Or if it's just in the ways that she interacts in the group. She wants greatness if she's just getting the muscles for everyone to eat. She's really focused on an ambitious to have a role and to have a place and to have a have a sense of purpose right and she has an ambition that drives her to that i also put down witty because i think we often forget that she is fucking really witty 
Um, she makes like good jokes. Her sense of humor is just super dry, right? And so sometimes it, it's dry in the same way that Leah's is, that sometimes you'll miss if you're not paying attention. But I do think um, her sense of humor is something that I, I always really enjoy when I'm really paying attention to the way that she's sort of like navigating things. My last word to describe Rachel is retrospective. I think she shows such a strong ability to be able to reflect back on things. You know, she might not always be able to sit and really think about things with herself removed in the moment, but she shows so many spots where she's able to sort of like look back on things and understand them in a different way. One of the examples I always think about is when her and Nora are sitting on the beach and, you know, she's talking about, you know, Nora protecting her when she's talking to the detectives about what it was like to have Nora as a sister and what it is like to have that person who kind of moves and surrounds and protects you but not understanding what that means she's just able to think on things with a perspective and that sort of like colors and changes her memory of them and I think um, it's a really good skill to have she's bendable right and moldable I know I already called her a rod but like (laughs) she's bendable when she thinks back on things and she's able to understand that you know she's not always correct in her initial impression of something that's going on my words actually map on yours extremely well. You had ambitious and I had achieving. So I think she is ambitious, but I also think she's successful in that. She sets her goals and she's goal oriented and oftentimes she achieves. It's not just that she's aiming, it's that in, that achievement happens. You had retrospective, I had seeking. And so while seeking also plays into that goals and being able to achieve things, she's also trying to make those connections. She's seeking whatever she's motivated by, and she's always seeking that other perspective, and that ties into that ability to be retrospective. And then you had witty, and I had intense, which might not be words that you'd think about mapping onto each other, but actually that's the context I thought about it in, is I was like, I need a word to describe her sense of humor. And it's that like intensity that she has and it's her approach to everything, whether it's seeking and achieving, but also even her sense of humor. She's like committed to the bit, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And even when she's on the top of the cliff making jokes with Shelby, it's so unexpected. Same thing when she's with the goat. It's so unexpected, but she brings that intensity and she also brings that intensity to her humor but also her relationships too. So I think our actually our words map on exceptionally well. Excellent. It's always nice when that happens. Yeah. And then the final bit that we like to do is to bring some words that describe both of them. Describe the duo, describe the pair. So the first one I have is impulsive, which may seem a bit of a weird one if we're thinking about Nora. But I think both Rachel and Nora are impulsive. And they make decisions really quickly sometimes. And they they follow like one of them their gut and the other one their heart in ways that impact the world around them. Nora does, you know, sit back and think on things. But we also see her make a lot of moves that are done in a way that, you know, she hasn't really thought about all of the consequences. I think the pit is a great example. Like brilliant to lead Leah to this pit that I do think was built as part of a previous experiment. Um, but 
also my question is always like what the fuck was her plan like how long was she leaving leah in the pit for like what happened when leah got out of the pit and why did she let leah see her at the edge and it's that impulse where i think she came to make sure leah knew that she wasn't in the pit going to die but she doesn't always think through some of her actions she doesn't always think through her choices rachel similarly acts impulsively she you know takes off to form her own search party she acts up that that gut she makes these these choices and and then follows them right and so i think she's she's impulsive in a way that's different from nora's impulsiveness but is also sort of in line with that sort of not always thinking everything through now because we all want to make fun of me my next word is calculating which is kind of in opposition of impulsive but I do think that in the moments where both of them aren't acting impulsively, they are acting in a way where they're thinking about how they can get towards their end goals. So whether it's Nora thinking about how she's guiding things on the island to make sure that Rachel gets better, or whether it's Rachel thinking about how she's like pulling people to go on her side missions or work towards some of her goals. I think they're both very strategic in that way and they can think in those those paths and can kind of see five or six or seven steps ahead, right? And think about how they can get there. And so they have sort of that like that focus, that horizon vision that they're sort of following. The last one I have is lost. Think both of them have lost their sense of self in a lot of way and are struggling to find that. They're struggling to find a purpose. They're struggling to find a path. They're struggling to find what they need in their lives. And I think they try to fill it with different things. Actually, there's like a lot of moments where Nora puts on different personas on the island, almost like she's trying them out. I think Rachel, you know, once she's lost her purpose of diving she doesn't really know where to go and so both of them are very much as a lot of the girls are are very much at a crossroads where they're still trying to understand where they belong yeah i actually i like all your three words better than mine so i'm just going to endorse those as the three words i actually really hard time finding words for them i'm more comfortable picking out like dualities if you will which is something i often do and so I often think of them as really opposite. I think of them as like almost left brain versus right brain. You know, Rachel being very left brain and Nora being very right brain and how they kind of function in each of those ways. But something that I often think about with the two of them is I love how you said that they are calculating because I think it's very easy for us to see Rachel as this like strong-willed, headstrong, stubborn, achieving person. Nora as this like gentle, thoughtful, observant, smart, bookish person without realizing that it's almost just how they kind of spin it with their personalities and how they're both calculating how to some extent Nora is even more calculating. It's just kind of disguised if you will and so i love those words that you chose well i think what's really interesting is i agree with you in a lot of ways they represent oppositional forces and they sit as kind of polar opposites on a, on a scale but my favorite thing about the two of them as a pair is the way they subvert those and they flip 
So for example, I always think about, you know, detached versus emotional and the ways that in different moments, each are one of those, right? There are moments when Rachel is detached. There are moments when Rachel is super emotional. And similarly with Nora, she fits both of those roles. And so I think like they're not easy to put in boxes because they are very similar in a lot of ways that just kind of get hidden under all of these other layers of hobbies and sort of personality bits. But at the core, they both are kind of the same, but they also both kind of like flip and and play with sort of like those those polar kind of divisions. Which is actually like the perfect segue to take us into our special theme for Nora and Rachel, which is duality of nature. So in a lot of ways, we're asked to think throughout the show about how Nora needs to speed up, how Nora needs to move, and how Rachel needs to slow down or to be still. The sort of pinnacle episode and pinnacle like scene that really explores this is during the hunt for Fatten, when Rachel is stuck in that quicksand and Nora is on the beach with the fire that's going out. Rachel in that moment needs to be still and she needs to trust in others in order to survive that. On the other end, Nora on the beach needs to speed up. She needs to trust in herself to be able to keep that fire going. And so their journey between Rachel slowing down and Nora speeding up is something that both of them are working towards. Both of them are trying to get through over the course of the episode. Nora and Rachel are always at odds. We rarely see them in synchronicity. It only happens in like these very few moments. So we see it in that montage when they're dancing in Rachel's episode. We see kind of like a bunch of flashes about them as sisters. And then also we see that on the beach when they're holding hands at the end of Rachel's episode. So in both of these, they're kind of, I would almost describe them as still moments though. They're moments when sort of all of these external pressures don't exist in a lot of ways and they're able to just exist relationally together and able to sit together. So I often wonder if like that's what draws Nora to the quiet is that sense of peace that comes and the sense of peace that comes when her and Rachel are aligned and are these the moments when they feel the most connected what do you think about the opposite where rachel feels the most connected to nora in moments where they're speeding up when rachel is holding on to nora behind the bleachers talking about we're gonna kill it smash it kill it smash it where they're amping each other up or when they're both diving out to the wreckage and rachel talks about how nora is a strong swimmer and it's a really kind of tense scene where they're really focused on achieving. I think so, but I think they they need different, and that's the tension they always have, is they both need something different from that relationship, and it's situated at odds with each other. It also reminds me of our relationship. Oh yeah, what does it remind you? <laughs> what does it remind you of our relationship? Because you're always telling me, Rachel, me Rachel, or slow down, chillax a bit more, and I'm like, Allie, let's do some things! Yeah, that's true. I have a very calm energy, though, and you have a very, like, amp-up energy. It doesn't mean that necessarily those energies don't work together, because there has to be an element of, like, compromise that happens, right? So you have to, like, meet in the middle, 
or you have to like speed up or be in motion more in some places and then also be still and calm and vortex that's what i call it vortexing um and like vortex in other moments right and so you have to reach that compromise that understanding when you have different facets like that in your personality Otherwise, you do always exist at odds and things don't work. But when you can find those compromise points, when you can see and understand what other people need from you and you're able to meet that sometimes and ask them to meet you where you're at other times, that's when you can like work together. But like in a lot of ways, like Nora and Rachel haven't hit that point. They both are asking the other person to bend to what they need. And Nora is the person who bends the most, but she does it in a way that compromises her own self and is actually harmful to herself. I think it's also connected to this concept of rest and of needing to rest in a lot of ways both of them haven't rested they're both pushing and pushing and pushing but they that idea of stillness is so connected to that idea of recharging of recentering of having spaces where you can be retrospective of having spaces where you're able to put those ideas of impulse to the side where you're able to really think about your path forward. I don't always know if they actually put and make space for that. The times that they do are weirdly also marked with danger. So if we think about that very last scene on the island, you know, Rachel going out to float, she's going out to be still. She's going out to have sort of a moment that's absent of movement. She's going to that peaceful place. And so maybe it is that you know, Nora wants Rachel to be peaceful and still, but that's dangerous for her in a way. And like it puts them in sort of this precarious situation because, you know, if she's been working this entire season towards getting to a place where she can be chill, where she can be still, it's also what puts her in danger. It's what puts her at risk at that shark attack. It's what makes her be still in the water, right? And so it also like is potentially like a downfall moment as well. And I think just really makes me want to shift into talking a little bit about the water. Water plays such an important role for all of the girls on the island. And the fear of the water is something that really drives Rachel and Leah, both of them. You know, Rachel with her, if you think about how scared she was about the water towards the end of the season, right? When she hadn't eaten, when she was sort of like scared of the harm that the water had caused her. And then you also think about Leah, you know, swimming out and stuff and thinking of the water as this adversarial force for both of them. This relationship with the water and this understanding of the water as a barrier is something that's so pervasive to all of them. But I think it's interesting the people who we see in the water and the people who we see engage with it. I also wonder, you said this earlier, but like, you know, Rachel always talks about how Nora is such a good swimmer. And I'm like, is Nora a good swimmer though? Or does Rachel just tell herself that Nora is a good swimmer? Like Rachel repeatedly says it, but like, if you even think about when they swam out to the wreckage, like Nora's so tired with a floaty. So I'm always like questioning this relationship with Nora in the water because they would have put Nora in the water to bring Rachel in if that's what happened and Nora wasn't just telling Rachel that. And then you have them going out to the wreckage and then you also have like Nora almost drowning as a part of that tidal wave. But all of these points, like Nora feels very in danger. She's a fear of the water as well. It's just not as apparent as Rachel and Leah's is. I think like, I guess maybe... Like a huge part of Nora's journey in particular is learning how to let go of the blame that she puts on swimming for taking her sister and how she like connects that to the water, right? 
I always think about that scene when she takes like Rachel up to the cliff and she's like, you need to make a truce with the water. But I wonder if it's not just about Rachel reaching a truce with the water, but about Nora reaching a truce as well. Diving, she has to come to this understanding that, you know, diving wasn't what took Rachel. The water didn't take Rachel. Her, the coach didn't take Rachel. Like Rachel took Rachel. And so like all of that, like those harm and those pieces were also impacted by Rachel's drive and Rachel's ambition. And those are some of the things that pushed her. And she has to like come to that understanding in that moment that, you know, Rachel needs to keep the things that she loves and be connected to the things that she loves and that the water isn't necessarily something that is harmful, which is connected to our episode title, which is, I don't want you to forget you because that's something that, that Nora says in that moment. And I think, it's interesting because we as humans are kind of defined by the things that we love, the things that we believe in, the things that we are really passionate about. But the things that we love aren't always good for us, but the loss of them is still devastating even when they're harmful to us. And Nora's really afraid that by losing the water, Rachel will not only lose the thing that she loves, but she'll lose a piece of herself. And Nora in so many ways has already forgotten herself, like forgotten herself as Nora. She lost like the people that she loved. She lost Quinn. She has this very damaged, very shattered relationship with Rachel. And she'd previously used them as this sort of compass to align and understand herself. And now she's struggling to refine herself. And so I think she has that fear that if Rachel loses the water, if Rachel only perceives the water as this dangerous thing, that she won't ever find herself. And I think there's a lot of ways that the water poses a threat to Rachel and that Rachel does have danger and suffering when she's in the water. It's interesting to think about the water and causing harm because we see what a lot of folks, I guess, would think about as the most harmful bodily fluid, I guess. Sorry, that's gross. But is blood, blood in the water, right? So we see Rachel in her episode when she hits her head. We see the nice aerial shot of the blood in the water then later in the episode where they all get high and they're hanging out in the water uh, Rachel gets her period and bleeds on Dot in the water and then in the final episode of course after we see the shark circling her and her presumably being pulled down by the shark we see blood in the water again so three instances where Rachel is bleeding in the water does that mean something like I'm not a shocking not a literary gal if you will so Ali does that mean anything mm-hmm. I mean I'm thinking of if there's any other instances of like blood in the water I can only think of one which is Leah when she walks into the water you know what I mean after like oh yeah smears the blood on her face but it's not Leah bleeding like in all of the situations you mentioned like Rachel is bleeding in the water right and so I think about like Leah in that motion like is there is blood in the water it's just not hers right and I also am thinking about the other three instances you said with Rachel and Nora was witness to all of them and so I'm thinking about the ways that if the three of them have this sort of pervasive fear of the water that they're all connected blood in the water can mean different things Um, often like blood is sort of used as like a redemption tool so if we're thinking about Um, things like that right and water often is like you think about it as like rebirth as like new life as sort of like this restorative force 
And so I think like the act of like bleeding in the water for thinking about redemption arcs on the island, if we're thinking about the girls working towards being redeemed, it does like connect them with sort of like new life happening in those moments. And like, how are those connected to, to moments of growth for them? So I know I'm just like thinking as I'm going, but like, I know that um, when, you know, Rachel gets out of the pool, like that's like a big, moment of change for her it's a it's a second opportunity she could have died honestly right like when she hit her head I'm thinking about you know the conversation she has with Nora after she has her moon time or she has her period in the in the water and about how it like reconnected her to her body in an important way and made her understand her body is not a machine Um, I mean we don't really know what the fallout of the third one is because it happens right at the end of the season but if we think about the way that we've seen, if, if she does lose her hand in that moment and we think about the, the Rachel that we see in the bunker, she has like a level of like perspective that she didn't have previously. If that's sort of like one of the outcomes that comes. So they could be sort of like this redemption rebirth moments for her. Yeah, I like the parallel that you made to Leah being covered in Fatten's blood because mm-hmm. I just did a quick tally of when else we see blood. So we see blood on Martha with the goat blood. Yeah. We also see animal blood on Dot, which we talked about a fair bit in terms of overkill a couple of episodes ago. We also see Regan with a bloody lip, bloody nose in Tony's episode. And then when Fatten and Leah are fighting, we Wait, see... Wait, you just write this all down? Yeah. Okay, sorry. Keep going. When Fatten and Leah... <laughs> yeah. And then when Fatten and Leah have their fight, we see Fatten bloody and then the bloody piece of clothing that she leaves when she goes to find the fountain. They are all kind of these these moments, though, where change can happen, right? Like, if you think about, like, Regan and Tony, right? Like, it's sort of a... It's a climax, right? It's a climax to sort of, like their relationship like Fatten and Leah it's a climax to that fight that they're having they're sort of these these big moments the other symbolism that you can kind of read into like like is that whole that old adage like blood is thicker than water right and so it's usually used a little bit more to think about the ways that you know your relationship your relational or your family blood is is thicker than like your friendships and stuff like that but in a lot of ways like the blood is dissipating in the water if we think about all of these instances well it's interesting in contrast to lynn bleeding internally Mm -hmm. she doesn't actually bleed in the water Mm -hmm. right I think like blood is often used just to like underline the severity of a situation the importance of a situation right it like reaffirms for us like island's dangerous if you had any doubts about it but i do think the ways that everyone like bleeds or interacts with bloods and the way that it it marks a change it marks something coming a shift in their perspective or their relationship with the world or their relationship with the people around them if we're thinking about it as like an act of like is bleeding as an act of redemption is bleeding as an act of like penance is bleeding as like an act of reconnection or recentering even of your body and a remembering of like your relationship and responsibilities it's it's such like a visceral and like vivid form of imagery to think about and to really kind of like center and focus in on in the ways that those situations are different. And I do think the situations that happen on land are very different than the ones that happen in the water. I think it's also like the way that water is connected to 
fire, especially for Rachel and Nora. That's really interesting. Water and fire are always such oppositional forces. They're always seen as, as sit, situated in opposition to each other. But I think it's really connected to that concept of rest, that concept of stillness that the water embodies a lot for both of them. Um, the fire in particular I'm talking about is the one that happens in, in Fatten's episode when Nora volunteers to kind of watch it. And she keeps herself apart from Rachel. And there's lots of like pieces that we hear in there. Like, you know, oxygen is key, which is really connected to that concept of taking a breath, which is what Martha tells Rachel to do. And with that idea of like Rachel needing to be told to stop fighting, but Nora needing to be told to keep fighting and that she can't give up. I think in a lot of ways, as much as Rachel is connected to water, as much as like Rachel embodies water, she really does embody fire as well. And she's sort of, in a way, like a fire that could smother itself. It needs oxygen to keep kind of like a slow, low burn going. And there's sort of this line that is being shown to us that exists between passion and obsession. And I think Rachel blurs that line a lot. And so like she needs to keep that fire going, keep that drive going, but she can't let it burn uncontrollably. And I think like they show that just all throughout the show with, I mean, the amount of times where like, you think about Nora as someone who has to watch, who has to be watchful of things, and all the times when the fire isn't being watched and it goes out. I think, too, just to connect it with the research piece, something I find interesting is, of course, fire and water are both important milestones, but the way that fire is regenerative, but the access to fire continues and that they found a couple of different lighters they're able to bring back the lighter as well they were able to find it Nora tackles like the fact that their source of fire is regenerative in the same way that their source of water i.e a waterfall is also regenerative is really interesting and talks about some of the broader pieces of the research and that way in which it's facilitated i guess but also too we see gretchen in the water as well Mm. in the float spa and that is at a point of kind of transition for her to some extent too she's very visibly upset and uses it as a sensory deprivation to be still to float just to float in that way as well so i just wanted to tie that in as well yeah i think it is like i you often think of like fire as a movement thing it's it's a thing that is connected really to movement if we're thinking about that still and in motion right it is that that piece that's in motion Whereas you would often associate the water with something that is more still. And I think in different ways, they both have destructive atmospheres about them and they, they can cause destruction. The water causes a lot of destruction. Mm-hmm. But I think the idea being that if like the water is also and fire is also something that is so important to survival, is so connected with regeneration, is so connected with continuing on. And so our last piece is... For every duo, we talk a little bit about why Gretchen picked each of the girls as part of the duo. So, Ali, I was wondering if you wanted to start with Nora. Yeah, I have some reasons down why I think Gretchen picked Nora. The first one is always Nora's ability to detach from things, I think, is really important. Her ability to look at things a little bit separate from herself and separate from emotions is something that would have genuinely drew Gretchen to her. I think also Nora's ability 
to understand the individual and the importance of the individual is another piece. That's the moment when Gretchen really flipped on recruiting Nora, right? Not me. I mean, I think she was there the whole time to recruit Nora. So I don't know if that's quite accurate, but that's really the point where in the conversation, she really started to show a lot of interest in Nora was when, you know, Nora started talking about how she wasn't, you know, there for retribution. She wasn't there. She was there to show, who Quinn was as an individual. And I think in all the ways that Gretchen really focuses on the system, Nora really focuses on the individual and she really recenters that back in a way that I think that Gretchen needs. She needs someone to refocus back on the individual because she's so system focused in the work that she does. She needs someone who is going to person think. They're going to think about the people and not just think about the groups. And that's like such an important balance that Gretchen needs. And that's such an important balance to have on the island because Nora can think and check in and see the places where people are struggling is that observational quality that she has. I think she also has a personal stake in the wellness of the girls and that's important to Gretchen too. Nora has an investment in Rachel getting better. And that means that on some level she has an investment in the experiment objectives being achieved because that's what was sold to her so she's going to work for things she's going to like continue to look for things because she wants better things for her sister i think she's also got a lot of knowledge she's quick to pick up information she probably spent her time preparing she's smart she's intelligent i think those are all things that marked off nora to gretchen as well i think she's also not threatening and so in a lot of ways you know, Gretchen would have been looking for someone to act as a confederate that wouldn't be obvious as a confederate, that wouldn't give things away, that would be able to operate under the radar, who would be able to move in spaces without drawing suspicion. And I think Nora embodies all of those pieces. I don't think I'm going to say much new for Rachel. We've talked a lot about how there are things that happen on the island that would not happen without Rachel. Whether that be climbing the mountaintop or diving to the black box. And we know that the black box, as an example, is a milestone that they planned for, they accounted for, they knew was going to happen. And they created a ruse or some sort of distraction or some sort of companion piece, i.e. the fake recording, in order to quell any fears or anxieties. We've talked in a previous episode about how they might have found that too early. They might have thought it wasn't going to happen until they were a little bit more tired or a little bit further in their survival journey. And the impacts of finding that so early might have on Leah's skepticism and paranoia and questioning of the experiment. And so I do feel in a lot of respects that that is why Gretchen chose Rachel is because she kind of moves the plot along, if you will. She moves a lot of those milestones along. She's achieving, she has really strong leadership characteristics and she's able to kind of get shit done and mobilize and dig deep. And I think we're gonna see that drive and that grit that she has even further in season two. And even when we see her at the end of her episode, the fact that she still has this like deep inner strength and that ability to reflect on things in that situation, regardless of what happened to Nora a lot. There's lots of speculation. Is she alive? Is she not? What's happening, etc. I think is a testament to the strength of her character and one of the reasons why Gretchen chose her. 
part of me, and we talk about this in a lot of the other duos, is was it Rachel or was it Nora that she wanted? Did she want Nora because she's smart, because she's curious, because she's idealistic, because she was committed to the purpose, because of that connection to Quinn, whether it is Gretchen's son that killed him or not, whether or not Gretchen does have a son, who knows? Did she want Nora? And then when Nora said, can my sister come? She just said yes, because yes. Or did she want Rachel? She wanted someone who was so seeking, who was so achieving, who probably had a bit of a public profile as like a collegiate athlete, who maybe had some files from guidance counselors, some medical records from her time in inpatient treatment. Did she want Rachel or did she want Nora? I'm a little bit further to the camp, and you might be able to tell that she wanted Rachel. She wanted that kind of varsity pre-collegiate athlete um, who had self-destructive behaviors, but they weren't self-destructive in a way that was dangerous so that she was able to test her theories in that way. I'm a little bit more on the side of Rachel. Where I get confused is the Quinn piece, and where I get even more confused is the Devin piece. I think she wanted both. Yeah. I think that like that's her holy grail was like twins twins or sisters who are very close and who one of them fit that sort of like role that role of of being that pusher and the other one who was someone who could be manipulated into being a confederate and I think maybe like I toy with the idea or maybe it was more important like if I put it let me take out the confederate part but someone who was that collegiate athlete and someone who was trying to hold them tethered to the ground and trying to help them in that way I think the confederate is important to her but i think there was a lot of flexibility as to who the confederate could be in pairs in a lot of ways putting the confederate though in a close relational pair is safer than making it someone who people are less connected with um, as long as you have the driver that makes that person invested in the experiment Right. And I think it's important that they are sisters and twins that are opposing because if they were sisters and twins that were like so fiercely bonded and connected, then it wouldn't have worked. Maybe they would have had too similar of skills or they always would have taken each other's sides and it would have impacted group harmony and the ways in which we see some of the skills and experiences mapped on, not between the duos, but across the pairs. Mm-hmm. I think that's an excellent place to leave it. Let's wrap it up. Let's wrap it up. Um, So that's the end of our Rachel and Nora episode. Thank you everyone for joining us. As always, feel free to reach out to us. Our social media handles are in the episode description. And otherwise, in two weeks, it'll be our last of the duo episodes. So we'll be coming at you with Shelby and Dot. And we're real pumped for that one too. But thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us. And I hope you have a lovely Everything's bigger in Texas, so it might even be a bigger episode. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I'm really pumped for it, so yeah. Okay. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Bye.